It is Wednesday, May 31st, <laughs> 2017. Oh, no, Did you hit play? No. Oh, okay. Don't hit play yet. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jeez. Does anybody Start need over to again. Um, okay. I'm sorry, Willie. I stepped on your stick. Go ahead. Whatever. Are we... Never step on a man's stick. We're wasting valuable tape. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. Unless he wants you to. Are we quite finished? <laughs> sorry. We are paused at the beginning of chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can start please start off in the us, rails in us. we are off the rails <laughs> we have left the tracks that is where you need to be as well pause off the rails commencing commencing <laughs> We're going to be commenting on this black swath of emptiness for the next 90 minutes. Please do. Please do settle in for an enchanting ride into the bowels of blackness. Paused at uh, the beginning of chapter one on the Scream Factory Blu-ray, but if you have the Universal Blu-ray, it'll probably do the exact same thing. So feel free to get uh, caught up with us. Paused at the beginning of chapter one. Okay, plenty of time. Hitting play in three, two, one, play. And Film Cult, at long last, has gotten its shit together for uh, our fan commentary for John Carpenter's masterpiece, The Thing, 1982. Uh, unsurpassed body horror, makeup effects, sci-fi freakout. Um, definitely in my, my top five favorite films of all time. Probably a couple of other people on this commentary. Uh, who will yes. now introduce themselves from left to right. Uh, I'm Willie Greer. I'm Ron Lee. I'm Trista Perez, the video vixen. I'm Dan Gilnark. Damon Gaynor. Our lovely Seattle cult branch Skyping in as usual. And we had a few uh, false, stop, false starts getting this commentary together. It's taken a couple of months, uh, actually, enough. <laughs> and... Uh, very, very happy to be here, finally. We did Halloween a couple of months ago, which is uh, Carpenter's all-time classic. And uh, this is definitely, I think, inarguably his masterpiece. Um, it's hard to pick which, which film I like better, because they're both brilliant for very, very different reasons. But in both cases, kind of uh, perfect storms of uh, input from Carpenter and everybody that he had assembled on his team. Just very, very, very few negative things to say about this movie. My God. You really feel like he was at the top of his game. You know, and then he got the, the backing of a studio that actually let him do what he wanted to do. So it was like kind of a, like you said, a perfect storm of resources. Absolutely. And he actually kind of got pushed by uh, the producer, Stuart Cohen, who we'll talk a little bit more about, I'm sure, over the course of this commentary. But um, it was actually, I think, Cohen who... Uh, at least in his commentary on the Scream Factory Blu-ray, pushed for a few extra things like uh, common, like like Carpenter casting outside of his usual uh, stock of performers and uh, getting more Coney to do the score as opposed to him doing it himself again. Kind of encouraging well, just him to dream quick, a little bigger. Oh, sorry. That was it. I was just going to say real, real quick on that, that title, how they pulled off the title sequence. It's mm. uh, exactly how they pulled it off in the original uh, thing from, is it Thing from Another World or Thing from Another Planet? 
but it's uh it was a um fish tank filled with smoke and then they had a stencil behind it and then they covered it with uh the fish tank with a trash bag and burnt the trash bag and shine the light through it so it was a example of a practical effect that was really cool Oh, oh wow. wow. I, I knew that they, they tried to emulate the John Hawks uh, title as closely as possible. I didn't know that they went to that length. That's that's pretty amazing. Wonderful stuff. I can't even, I just can't stress enough how amazing the fucking Blu-ray transfer of the thing is looking at this imagery. You catch things in the Blu-ray that you would never catch. I mean, for those of us who grew up watching this on VHS. Yeah. Uh, and those so, losers who saw it on TV for the first time. <laughs> yeah, the less said about them, the better. <laughs> but yeah, so beautiful and so bleak, the uh, the imagery here and, and the music. It definitely kind of tells you from the get-go that uh, this is kind of a Night of the Living Dead style piece, that things just aren't going to work out well for anybody. And this is... a. Uh... John Carpenter and Larry Franco up in the helicopter. Larry Franco is the co-producer. Yeah, I think this is the film that Carpenter learned how to fly helicopters on. That's as close as he ever came to uh, being in any of his movies again. He used to do a lot of voice work uh, for earlier movies, and he did like a brief appearance in The Fog. He's, of course, not very good. So that kind of soured him after that. He's like, yeah, after that, I just did helicopter pilots and walk-ons. Yeah, Rob, Rob Boutine was a uh, was an extra in the fog too, wasn't he? He was Blake. Yeah, he was the head pirate mm-hmm. or oh. he- head leper. That was actually kind of where they met for the first time. Um, Rob kind of barged in during a meeting and just kind of said, "Hey, you know, I love your movies. I have to work with you someday. Do you have anything available in this movie?" And was expecting to kind of get thrown out of the office, but Carpenter said, "Yeah, actually, what size are you? Yeah, you'll be a great Blake." And that uh, was kind of the beginning of their relationship. Yeah, what a marriage made in heaven. I mean, oh. this uh, there are all these stories about, you know, Rob Bottin, you know, had crafted these just incredible, ingenious, you know, appliances for this movie. And then uh, didn't want them to actually be seen. So he was constantly, you know, uh, chewing out Dean Cundy for lighting the, uh, the scenes too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he didn't want the rubber to be shiny. Which right, is understandable. Right. But yeah, at the same time, how can you not want to show off your work? And this is uh, such beautiful and grotesque. You know, like the the, the likes of uh, the heights of H.R. Giger and maybe even Hieronymus Bosch, some of the stuff that he pulled off in this movie. Oh, absolutely. And uh, right here, we're checking out the only female character in the thing, the chess computer, voiced by uh, Adrian Barbeau. And she's not going to last too long. It's a very, uh, very important theme in the film is the the lack of of femininity for sure. Testosterone overload. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess so. The idea for his his uh, character here was that he was a in Vietnam, like a pilot. <clears throat> but I think they do a really good job of um, with his isolation there. You know, putting him in that shack, even removed from the other guys. Like he could be p- playing the other guys' chess. I mean, there's plenty of board guys there but he's playing a computer drinking his booze so i think i love that i love the idea that this um i love the psychological effect of the snow exteriors here you know setting up the interior that that we have later just the uh, interior paranoia 
you see the Smokey the Bear sign there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is it. If you ever wanted to like win an argument with somebody about practical effects versus CG and the relative value of each, this this is the movie to show them to shut everything down. This is just it's just magical what what they what they pull off. Um, and watching this again, it kind of, it, it sort of gave me the idea of like, uh, that's, that's what you lose when, when you, when you get rid of practical effects, you, uh, it's like a magic trick. Yeah. It becomes CG, a cartoon. You always know how they do it when it's CG. It's, it's a computer, you know, but Rob Bottin pulls, pulls off some amazing stuff here. So how much, how much of that is generational though? Do you feel like the kids coming up today? appreciate the practical effects or do they care as much about the CGI? I, I don't know. I mean, if, if you're, if you're growing up in a, in a world where anything is writable in a computer, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. I, I can remember watching this movie in the drive-in and just being, you know, going, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> looking, looking at the head, you know, crawling around the spider stalks, uh, you know, no matter how grotesque it is, it's all, you know, Kermit on a bicycle. You're wondering how the fuck they did all of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I remember as a kid, like, um, uh, not I mean, in, enjoying stop motion animation for what it was, but always being able to tell that it was phony. Um, and that was an effect that was maybe, to my generation, a little bit antiquated, but... I think there are similarities between stop motion and, and, and CG, which is most of the time it looks like animation and there's really no getting around that. Uh, mm-hmm. They actually, in the thing, they do have a couple of very carefully placed moments of stop, stop motion that, that blend in pretty well. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna interrupt, to interrupt you real quick. I'm going to translate this guy, what this guy's saying. Oh, uh, yeah, he's yeah. saying, get the, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's an imitation of a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so there that's cool there there were a lot of similarities between the thing and the alien obviously and i think that's kind of one of them is uh right out of the gate they get a, a warning message that they don't understand until it's too late mm-hmm. and you have this group of kind of uh very blue collar people uh just like alien one of them is working for the government and one of them is working for a corporation that might as well be the government and uh, in a very, very isolated, very cold, lonely environment and having to deal with this monster. Um, and also, of course, all of the uh, Freudian, uh, perversely sexual body horror kind of themes that pop up in both movies. What's well, interesting, too, the overlap between him and, uh, and O'Bannon. Mm. Yes. No, very, very true. They got their, uh, their starts on, uh, on Dark Star when they were at... Uh, UC uh, Film School in Southern California. Um, am I getting that right? Is that the name of this right? But yeah, USC. USC. Yeah, USC. Yeah. Uh, they worked together on uh, Dark Star for the first time, and it was uh, a functional creative relationship until it wasn't, and then it really wasn't because uh, Dan O'Bannon was, uh, by most accounts, kind of a difficult person to get along with. <laughs> it and- went the way of most Dan O'Bannon collaborations, <laughs> yeah. Not that Carpenter isn't a forceful, forceful personality by himself. Yeah, you know, it was probably a 
the, the clash between them was probably inevitable. And the, the dog, Jed, just to pause briefly on the dog, mm. uh, some great dog acting. Yes. I mean, the the <laughs> things that they were able to pull mm. off. And I was uh, reading an interview with Carpenter where he was saying, you know, they were filming some scenes where the dog just basically would improvise perfectly, you know, looking in doors, pausing, and then moving on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they, they didn't have to uh, prompt him at all. I think people also kind of said that like every once in a while, because, because Jed was part wolf, that he would get a certain look in his eyes. And if he did, like you were just supposed to leave him the hell alone. <laughs> there so is also kind of fit right in, in this atmosphere of paranoia and distrust. Sorry, Damon. There, there's also j just to throw this in here early. There is, there's the subtext of the eye light. You've, mm. you've heard about the eye light. Oh yeah. That, uh, yeah. Well, what is that? Oh, we'll this get into is that. the, uh, so, so as you're watching the film, um, something that, uh, they decided to throw in as sort of a, a, a nonverbal cue to characters, humanity is that they have a certain eye light that that's on them as they're, as they're being filmed. Cundy would, would make sure to highlight the eyes just subtly. Um, and, uh, it's something that you catch if you watch it really closely, but, it was all set up just to emphasize the last shot between uh, Childs McCready. Not to not to step on you there, but I think it was primarily for the Palmer uh, blood test scene. Well, that too. Yeah, but that, primarily Willie is wrong. Anyway. It's between Childs and McCready. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't they don't necessarily admit to the last bit with Childs and McCready, but they definitely admit to the Palmer stuff, and it kind of. Looking at the last scene, yeah, you definitely see he doesn't have any highlights. So, I think there uh, there are a few things that they're not saying that are probably true. What's this actor's name? David Clennon, I think, uh, playing Palmer. It's like they wanted, you know, they wanted Dern and they couldn't get him, <laughs> so they got a Dern-like person. He is Dern-esque. That's yes. true. <laughs> So the Wilford Brimley character was originally supposed to go to Donald Pleasance, right? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, the kind of, the, like, Carpenter's initial impulse was to get his standard his stock, stock players. players to come in. So, like, Donald Pleasance is Blair. I think maybe Isaac Hayes is Childs. What? <laughs> Tom wow, Atkins, Tom Atkins is McCready. And uh, actually, Stuart... Stuart Cohen, uh, the producer of the film, uh, this is the only film to his credit as a producer, was one of the people I think who was kind of pushing John to maybe go outside of his comfort zone a little bit uh, in casting and, and in terms of getting uh, uh, more Coney to do the score. Not that anybody like didn't have faith in what Carpenter could do as a composer, but I think Cohen was like, you know, we're, we're at Universal. You can probably get more Coney. Maybe you should go for it. I gotta say, the score, um, the score though is really—I mean, even though it's Marconi, it really is a Carpenter-esque score for sure. Yeah, Carpenter had a lot of influence on it, definitely. There's a couple of pieces that are very uh, lush and orchestral that we'll hear later on, like going to the Norwegian camp and stuff. Um, and those were used by Carpenter, but like in the second meeting, um, yeah, I think uh, 
Carpenter's notes for uh, for Morricone was use fewer notes. So he came back with a few more kind of minimalist synthesizer pieces that sound very Carpenter-esque. Yeah, it's so Carpenter-esque. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that hat McCready was wearing. It's like the uh, Rough Rider hat. It's like the Roosevelt hat, the rugged individualism. Oh. <clears throat> I have to uh, <clears throat> give props to uh, T.K. Carter. He is like token black man in so many movies in the 80s. And in this one, he gets like a partner. It's, he's, <laughs> there's like two black guys in this one. And one makes it all the way to the end, too. Yeah. So this is what Carpenter is so brilliant at the use of empty spaces. Is that a camera shadow there on the right, or can we like... Yeah, I think, I think it was. I've never noticed it before, yeah. Oh, well. But just these... This is so brilliant. It really is. Oh, yeah, this shot is fucking extraordinary. <laughs> this is Jed Jed doing his acting you were talking about, Damon? This, this, is, this is Jed. Jed just being Jed. <laughs> Not directed at all. He's just doing this on his own. Who's this in the room here, do you guys think? What's everyone's take? Well, I love it, based on the hair. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was Kurt, Kurt Russell's stuntman. Um, oh. And the silhouette. Oh, Dick Warlock? So, Car- Carpenter so his stuntman che- was that thing. He cheated a little bit. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> So, round robin again. I'm going to ask you guys uh, what your first experience viewing this film was. I'm going to going to go go ahead and start here. But um, so this is a different. Sorry to interrupt you. This is a different helicopter, so they had a better view out the window here, of the horizon. This was B unit stuff. I'm sorry, Willie. Go ahead. No, no problem. Um, but I will say that I was I was lucky enough to have caught this movie in the theater uh, at 10 years old. Um, ret- retroactively looking back, I was lucky at the time. I, 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 I have to say, even though by that age, I was a pretty hardcore horror fan and I had seen some shit, um, going to see this film in the theater, I was very not prepared for it. And, uh, I didn't quite know what I thought of it. I don't think I really liked it very much for a long time. And, uh, excuse me, I feel terrible about that today because that was the reaction of so many people. And that's what kind of killed or what, yeah, I mean, more or less killed Carpenter's Hollywood career. It was a big nail in the, in the coffin for it, anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah, at the time, I was not ready for this film. Like, not so, not so much even just the gore, although that was a big factor, but just the kind of bleak, mean tone the film has. Like that shot from earlier where uh, Doc is sewing up Bennings's leg and being like, "Oh, don't be a baby! Come on, just four stitches." So I was like, "Ah, jeez!" As a kid, you know, kind of pushed me a little far. It's, yeah, it's crazy how negatively this was received. It I guess it's not crazy. It came out two weeks after ET came out, so it was oh, intense, well. man. the uh, The eighties were very much a time of uh, escapist uh, cinema, you know. And this has definitely like the kind of a darkness and cynicism that you associate with a lot of uh, a lot of the better seventies movies, almost. This and yeah. Last American Virgin were the two big downers of the eighties. Totally. <laughs> And let me read this. Let me read the New York Times review of this um, oh, from '82. Yeah, the Vincent, Vincent came out. <laughs> just read a couple sentences. John Carpenter's *The Thing* is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is that is fun is neither 
one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks uh, as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. <laughs> virtual storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory-concocted special effects with the actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated, finally to be eaten and then regurgitated as, guess what, more laboratory-concocted special effects. This fucking shot here. You oh, know, my God. I say, Vincent Canby's fucking vocabulary is a laboratory concocted spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking image. This extraordinary yeah. fucking Rob Bottin prop. This, this is really great. <laughs> this, uh... The exterior set, just to throw this in, this is this is actually the destroyed Outpost 31. Oh my god. No, no, I, th- I think this was actually on um, Universal set. Well, the exterior, yeah. were, the exterior yeah, were yeah. the de- decimated. Uh... Yeah, they they didn't think this was going to work when when Carpenter was looking at these these uh, props that Botine had come up with. He was like, "There's no way this this just looks too phony." And Botine was like, "No, as soon as when you've got it lit correctly, it's it's going to look fantastic." And it does. It's just amazing. It does, yeah. His his yeah, this, style is very comic book, sometimes borderline cartoony, Rob Boutine style. And yeah, that like even like a, an effect like that, which is ma- like, kind of going for realism, still has a very over the top effect. But yeah. it being kind of frozen and covered in, in frost really is forgiving. And they use, uh, I think, KY jelly for uh, <laughs> a lot of the rubber props just to make them look a little more lifelike. And they use KY all jelly. Pass, so. uh, uh-huh. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they use KY and jelly use... and and the uh the industrial edible epoxy that they use to make Twinkies. <laughs> yep. It's called, <laughs> it's called uh, Carbopole. Yes. Carbopole. Yeah, so these sets are uh, were done by John Lloyd who did Animal House. Actually, these I, I think these sets are just amazing. Yeah, some of the yeah. best ever. Yeah. Oh, and and this is one of the best ones right here. Yeah. Where they they pay tribute to the original John Hawks. Yeah, this is this is the scene for me that kind of sells the thing. Like almost, you could look at it as a, as a sequel as much as a remake of the uh, the Hawks and Ivy version. I mean, philosophically, they're they're very different. The the uh, the the Hawks and Ivy version takes the source material, which is which is about the paranoia and the shape shifting alien, and made it into the kind of a typical fifties xenophobic commie alien uh, paranoia fantasy. But this one kind of takes it back to a more, I would say, philosophically like liberal idea that it's not the other. You know, the the evil can be inside you know one or more of us. Yeah, I was really surprised. So I went back and um, and read "Who Goes There," the the original short story. This is based on, and this is way closer, obviously, than the Hawks material. I was really surprised. Like, um, you know, later on, we're going to have the the blood test scene was like was laid out pretty extensively in the in the original novella. I have not which, read which the story surprised yet. me. Yeah, there's um, there's a couple bits and pieces. I, I'll bring them up if they if they pop up. So what was y'all's uh, what was y'all's first ex- experience watching the thing? Well, I will admit that uh, my first time watching was on TV. Uh, but 
loser. I said, yeah. <laughs> loser. Um, but I still enjoyed it um, because I did not grow up in a happy, lucky, happy go lucky kind of life. So the downer ending for me totally made sense. <laughs> I was like, of course, this is how it ends. <laughs> No, but my mind was blown actually with the first time I got to really see it and realize like what I had fucking missed mm. that first time around. Yeah. Yeah, I think my first time was on TV too, and it was pretty butchered. And it was the the pan and scan with the because we had the widescreen, so it shot on uh, two three five. But um, my happiest memory is watching this with you, Willie, at the HP uh, Lovecraft Festival. On, oh, on a big screen. So fantastic. Yeah. It just blew me away. Looks like there's a lot of uh, references to like westerns in here, too. Mm. Oh, yeah. Looks yeah. well, like the... every John Carpenter movie is, is, is kind of a western in disguise. Totally. Yeah. And this one definitely has that Alamo feel to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is definitely real. Real Bravo was a huge influence on both Hawks. I mean, Hawks made it, but that was a huge influence on Carpenter. Yeah, Pressing so 13 gets is a lot basically of the, the mm-hmm. urban version of Real Bravo. Yeah, so I think he gets a lot of his love. Escape from New York is basically a spaghetti western in the future. And uh, Well, big, yeah, it was, it was the man with no name. Totally. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China was actually originally written as a Western, and they updated it to modern-day San Francisco. So this image, I think, is really interesting as the um, for a couple reasons. First, it looks like the Scream, which is a hmm. Norwegian. Edward Monk, Edward Monk was a Norwegian. Oh, and also, yeah. I was reading some theory that it kind of like represented the um, what's going to happen later with the group being pulled apart. Mm-hmm. That I think is my favorite image from the movie is the the stretchy face guy. That made a deep yeah, impression so on me as a kid. Like that and the uh the dog face that we'll see a little later. So I have to admit I came to this movie very late. I'm oh what's okay, man? Willie, did we watch this at a slaughter? A winter slaughter. I don't know if I don't know if you were going at that point. We watched it like the first winter slaughter. Oh no, I wasn't. Okay. But I think it was with you. It might have been because we did the carpenter thing, the music thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I went through and watched a bunch of stuff. I think I finally got to it then. Oh man. So, so yeah, this I, is I real liver and guts. Hmm. Oh, sorry, sorry, Ron. <laughs> no, I was going to say I never got to see the butchered version. But then we're kind of seeing some butchered. There, so <laughs> this uh, Scream Factory edition that we're watching actually does have the TV version. If you're ever morbidly curious, Ugh. <laughs> I think that would be fascinating. I, it's, it's 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 fascinating to watch the TV version. It's like sure. um, the Criterion Brazil has like the the TV edited version, which is like not only vastly different but changes the whole tone of it's the like movie. Oh, minute. it's amazing! Yeah, I've watched it. It's 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 really like watching just kind of a shitty TV movie. <laughs> that guy whoever did like a ton of the narration on those that guy is on there um yeah. and it's just bizarre yeah I, I thought it was really fascinating so 
So yeah, yeah the- Rob Bottin's effects are kind of like it's like the sweet spot between like Rick Baker and Screaming Mad George. He's like <laughs> he's just that he's just enough surreal <laughs> to like to oh, push you Mad over George the edge. A fucking shamelessly ripping off Bottin, if you ask me. Yeah, well. I don't know. I think that, you know, some of the effects that he did, like in Children of the Corn 3 and The Giver were pretty were pretty brilliant. Okay, but I didn't see those. Is is Children of the Corn 3 the one with Naomi Watts, or is that 4? I don't know who was in it. I know that somebody was killed so that their head was sitting atop their spine stalk. <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad. And... And that's that's what stays with me. But I was thinking, you know, that's 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 pretty amazing special effects. Isn't that where your head's supposed to be? It, it is, but you usually there's usually like more filler. Oh. <laughs> See, we've got all these kind of wonderful outsider characters that are uh, have seemingly run to the end of the earth to avoid whatever problems they had created for themselves back in civilian life, and uh, you know, McCready. Uh, Maybe this Vietnam vet with a bit of a drinking problem now. You got Palmer, who's a bit of a drug burnout. Uh, Clark here, played by Richard Mazur, is uh, the dog handler who seems to have uh, more empathy for animals than for people. That's because he's a child molester. <laughs> Fallen Angel. Remember that? I did not see that one. Uh, TV mo- made for TV movie where he's a child uh, molester. Okay. That's why he's hiding out. Yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> Do so you think it's the same character? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, McCready, the McCready dog, is the, the outsider even in this molester. group of outsiders. I'm sorry, Damon, what? Oh, I was just making a stupid joke. Go ahead, Damon. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. all I'm doing, so... Don't deprive us now. <laughs> Here we Come go. On. Here we go. Oh. oh, this is so good. Oh, mind-blowing doesn't begin to, ex- to describe... Oh. <laughs> 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 Oh, honey, I brought you a flower. Oh, no, if, if, if you're a kid watching this and your brain hasn't been totally shattered by now, this is the point where it goes. Yep, I can vouch for that. All, the whole mask of sanity just melts away. She's totally boshy in right here, man. Oh, Jesus. Oh, oh my God. Dogs going ape shit. <laughs> So the dog's going to get away for a second. All of this so far is still Botine. Um, there's a later stage of this dog <laughs> thing that was uh, done by Stan Winston, who was brought in to, oh yes. my God, to yeah. fill yeah, in a little Stan bit of Winston overload. Un- uncredited uh, special effect here, which is one of the best effects in the movie. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. But yeah, Rob was severely overworked uh, on this project. I think he pretty much lived on the set literally for a year working on these effects, like living on a diet of nothing but uh, candy bars and and soda. And according to some people, maybe some other stimulants too. I wouldn't doubt it. (laughs) Yeah, seven days a week, right? Mm -hmm. He was was 22? Yep. (laughs) I mean, I would have done the same thing. It's crazy. Having a fucking opportunity like this. Are you kidding me? I would live on the goddamn set for a year. Just to have that luxury of time. And like, like definitely this was the peak of Carpenter's life as a director, probably. And like, you know, he was very much obsessed with creative control. And he actually did get to finally, with this project, get into work on a big studio film 
with a decent budget and complete creative control. And very much like Alien, this is a a case where like every contribution that every person on the key crew brought to the table was absolutely the right one and just everything lined up perfectly. Except in the sense of audience written critical reception and box office, but that came later. <laughs> Other than that. Yeah, it was his masterpiece. Like you said, it was his masterpiece. Yeah, so this cost fifteen million and it grossed uh, seventeen million. Oh, that's a bummer. Oh, what a shame. It's tragic. Yeah. And it looks like thirty million. Oh, it's amazing what they did. And yeah, here we go with the the Stan Winston effect. It's pretty much a hand puppet and it looks fucking fantastic. <sighs> Wow. Jesus. (laughs) Reverse motion tentacles going Uh, on. Oh yeah. This this is like a this is a prime example of like John Carpenter's philosophy of horror filmmaking. It's like if if the monster is there and you can show it, fucking show it. (laughs) <laughs> and it's going to be just as terrifying <laughs> as if you insinuate. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Speechless. Okay, I think we're back into Rob Bottin. Ter- those look like Rob Bottin hands. And that's a quick little transition shot that they shot as pickup uh, later on. I think after Boutine was gone, they just kind of had to do the best they could with what they had. There are a few. Yeah, this shots is on like the last that. stuff of the film, right? Yeah. And this bit here, oh my god, this little meat flower. It's actually like a bunch of dog tongues lined with dog oh. teeth. Oh. <laughs> oh. I would let that cook a little more. Maybe yeah. let it burn for yeah. a bit more. <laughs> I remember when this came out, too, that the heaviest criticism that came out against this film was that it showed too much because they were comparing it to the Hawks original where everything was in shadow and kind of off-screen and suggested. And so, I mean, God, how fucking insulting. I mean, that, that's just a... Brilliant work of art. What? What's a? Yeah. Yeah. If, well, this, you're, what, if you're a if you're a diehard fan of the original, I could definitely see being kind of heartbroken by this movie. But, and it definitely qualifies much more as an adaptation of Who Goes There, a more genuine adaptation it, than a remake. It, it of, does. It does. But yeah. But still. Yeah. No, for sure. Uh, actually, know, I think, like, I think, uh, Christian Nyby actually himself said uh, of this movie, if you want blood, go to a slaughterhouse. Yeah, Ebert wasn't too kind to this movie either. <laughs> oh, I've got a few more reviews here somewhere. Hold on. I'm just going to trot them all out. <laughs> Fuck these people. <laughs> the whole rest of the commentary is criticizing the critics. Oh. <laughs> well, it shows it shows how generational it is, you know, because this was so far ahead of its time you know, a lot of the a lot of those critics had come up with the original it really was you know so they weren't ready for <laughs> that for all this 
So Alan, Alan Spencer in Starlog magazine said, John Carpenter was never meant to direct a science fiction horror movie. Here's some things he'd be better suited to direct. Traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just real quick, I want to point out that transition, that, that cut, the edit, and just... Um, you know, watching this a, a few times, paying attention to the, his use of um, cuts for, um, you know, time passing. So it, like, really messes with your sense of time. Like, you don't know how long people have been alone or how long it's been from scene to scene and what could have happened in that in that period. So it's just pretty, pretty masterful editing. Yeah, that one there was kind of... Uh... A weird one, even in this movie's transitions, was like a freeze frame and then a cut to black. That yeah, it does very it twice. TV. Yeah, yeah. There's two. There's two of those. Where's the other one? Uh, I can't remember. I know there's one more. Jesus Christ! Yeah, Boutine definitely has a signature. I mean, you can see it on like the Twilight Zone <laughs> segment that he did. Um, oh, that rabbit man! Oh my God! <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So Wilford Brimley was a bodyguard for Howard Hughes at one point. No shit. Yeah. And a cowboy and a bunch of other things in his past life. Wow. He's more than oatmeal. And, and the diabetes. <laughs> that was that was his uh, the title of his biography. Uh, more than oatmeal. <laughs> Trained in a very eyebrow-centric uh, martial arts technique. Tech Mr. Hughes. I can't remember the context, but I do know National Lampoon called him a fat fuck at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about the... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Will. Please go ahead. I insist. Oh, oh just that uh, was kind of like uh, a throwback to to the original film of this bit here. Yeah. Yeah. When they're kind of out, um, surrounding the, for sure, staking out the, the spaceship and kind of surrounding it. Um, and they showed this on, um, this was a scene they showed in Halloween, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like when they're circling the spaceship. Totally. And that's the theory why it's called outpost outpost 31 because of, uh, October 31st. Uh-huh. Halloween. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk just a little bit about the source material. So um, in the short in the short story or novella, who goes there? So that was in thirty eight. So John Campbell Jr. used a um, a pen name, uh, Donnie Stewart, when he did it, which I thought was kind of interesting, just because he's taking on a different identity to write the the story, but. Um, it, it happens that his mother was an uh, identical twin, uh, and he couldn't tell the difference between his mom and his aunt when he was growing up, hmm. and it terrified him that he couldn't tell the difference. It's pretty freaky. Yeah, so it's kind of some background of the story. But, um, yeah, so in the story, the dogs play a huge, a huge part, obviously, but... Um, I want to jump back a little bit further. So he was really influenced by, uh, John Campbell was really influenced by Lovecraft. Um, in the mountains of madness. Mm. And there was some, um, yeah, there's just a lot of overlap with the, 
um, the Shagath that are in that story. Mm-hmm. And so Lovecraft describes them as a formless protoplasm able to make and reflect all forms and organs and processes, viscous and um, and of bubbling cells, rubbery, spheroid, infinity, plas- infinitely uh, plastic and ductile. Got to point out here also the uh, fucking incredible Albert Whitlock matte painting of the saucer. Yeah, that really didn't look like a painting. <laughs> oh. So, and in, in Lovecraft was really influenced by the um, the polar exploration that was going on at the time, like the the um, Admiral Byrd wages and all that. But um, something else that I, that I found that was really interesting was uh, Lovecraft was really influenced by Poe. And um, Poe's only novel that he wrote is called The Narrative of uh, Arthur Gordon Prim, Pym of Nantucket. He wrote it in 1838, and it's kind of semi-autobiographical, but it's a story of him traveling to um, Antarctica. And it has this crazy ending where he meets this entity like right outside of Antarctica, and then it just ends. But it ends with the... the um, the hero in the story and like one other person like there on the edge of this, this unknown. So it's interesting that this oh. through all these variations of the story. So Poe to Lovecraft to Campbell to this, that um, Carpenter ends it like Poe ended his, his story. Right back to the source. Deep. <laughs> That's interesting. That's some fucking so my question beautiful is, Morricone music there. I just had to say that. Do you guys think that they went into the saucer? So, I mean, it's sitting there with the door open. Doesn't I mean, what are you guys' like thoughts it. of... Did they just peek in and keep going? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Keith David. He's like that generation Samuel L. Jackson. Fucking love this guy. Kind of is, yeah. He was a a very big stage actor before this, and he actually like was uh, teaching a class on proper theater diction, and was uh, terrified that he wouldn't be able to say this dialogue right. Voodoo bullshit. (laughs) Did a great job. Voodoo bullshit. He's gone on to do yeah, a lot of cool stuff. A lot of voice work. He was the voice of BMW for a while. He was the, the cat in Coraline. Oh, cool. And uh, did a stint on season six of Community. He was fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like this is one of the scenes where his hand is broken. He broke his hand in a car crash. So half the time his... Uh, Left hand is either hidden off screen or like in a black glove or something. Oh, no, there it is. Never mind. Can we talk a second about Dr. Copper's nose ring? Yes, please. Yes, please do. (laughs) I had never noticed that until I saw it on Blu-ray for the first time. It's not noticeable at all. Unless you're watching it in extremely high definition or unless you're watching it on a really large screen. But it's there. Yeah, 82. Del- Nobody had that shit back then. It's deliberate. 
it's deliberate. They, they, they obviously chose to give this guy a nose ring. It doesn't seem to fit with his character, but it can't be ignored once you see it. <laughs> so what was he escaping from? Yeah, does he have like some kind of leather bar background maybe? Or <laughs> Everybody has some, you know, you know, ha- has some bizarre backstory, you know, some dark history that they're fleeing from to get to this place. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't just the fact that he he had a nose ring. It's that he chose to keep it, you know, <laughs> even coming up to Antarctica. So yeah, they added this like, later, right? It's got to be uncomfortable if it gets like really cold. I was going to say, wouldn't it freeze? Yeah, it would. It probably would. It would probably be very uncomfortable. Now, here's something that I, I'm not sure if I believe Stuart Cohen's commentary. Um, well, he, like, it's it's contradictory in a couple of different ways. Uh, Stuart Cohen. Stuart, uh, Stuart Cohen, the producer, uh, has a commentary oh, okay. on this this Shout Factory Blu-ray, which is really fucking informative, and I highly recommend checking it out. And he's also got a great uh, blog page called um, oh, I'll find it, like the first fan at blogspot.com or something like that. Anyway, um, where was oh, it? It's called the, ori- the original fan. The original fan, thank you. The bit you don't believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he basically said, he says in the commentary that this movie was not, it was m- made to be seen once and then to disappear and not meant to be scrutinized as far as like figuring out the aliens' moves or the people's moves uh, in this kind of chess game that they're playing together. But um, he also says that he thinks Blair was the first to be infected. And that all everything he does later, like smashing up the control room and the chopper, are part of its strategy to get it put out in the shed and isolated so that it can go to work on the spaceship. You know, which kind of contradicts his theory of this wasn't meant to be analyzed because they obviously like thought about it. But also that scene where he's looking at the computer simulation, if he's if he's a thing at that point, why is he doing that? Like, is he trying to figure out his? odds as an alien for how quickly he can take over it doesn't seem like that would be motivated if he were the thing but i don't know it could be well when, when do you actually know that you're i mean that the whole thing is you wouldn't even know if you were a thing right when you continue that was something the actors kind of with your started discussing i don't know I, I feel like if you would have to know in order to be able to because you are ah strategizing and preying on these people. So you would kind of have to be conscious of what you were doing. If you were going to do it effectively, maybe it seems self-defeating and yet highly strategic. Like <laughs> it's very Trumpian. That <laughs> <laughs> was wondering when the first reference was going to get dropped. This is the yes. first film cult that we've done since all of that happened, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the original story, the creature was had, was almost psychic. They called it a uh, dream infectious. So it would get into your dreams or could actually can control you psychically a little bit. So, so the idea was that that's how it emulates you. It like, it infects you, but it also like knows your thoughts okay. so that it could per- perfectly mimic you. But also it knows what you're doing, you know, it knows what the plan is before you can execute it. So there's a lot of, um, in the original story who goes there, there's a lot of like um, uh, this chess match stuff. There's a lot of uh, it, it being 
um, you know, one step ahead. Okay. And the original story, so McCready is a meteorologist, but he's also, but um, he also went to medical school. So he like stopped, like rated his residence, residency, started becoming a, a meteorologist, but he's the one that like figures out how to uh, defeat the thing with the blood test in the, in the short story as well. But of course, the short story has a happier ending to actually defeat the thing. Okay. Yeah, there was an alternate happy ending to this movie too. Yeah. Um, that they uh, they had to shoot at the behest of the studio to give it, you know, an ending where McCready is airlifted out. He's taken to the mainland. They test his blood, and he turns out to be human. But real quick, um, he he drops the keys here, and this is that one yes. theory that Blair picks up the keys. Okay. Was, was, that, was that the uh, precursor to tentacle porn right there that we were just watching? <laughs> <laughs> so you think it was Blair that grabbed the keys? Yeah, I think that explains the blood. Okay. Like who got to the blood? Rob Ager, uh, who's a, a YouTuber, he's got a website called Collative Learning, and he's a, he's a critic after my own heart. He likes to explore psychoanalytical themes in movies and read way too fucking much into them. Um, but he's got a lot of videos on the thing. And um, I think he, he, it was his theory that Palmer picked up the keys, and I'm, I'm not sure hmm. why, what his reasoning was for that. I can't remember. But it's a lot of fun. He actually kind of explores a couple of those theories in some of his newer videos, uh, like the eye light theory and uh, the can you see child's breath at the end theory. And he even actually debunks and revamps one of his own theories. Uh, he did that pretty recently. But he's got this whole theory about clothing continuity and how it can help oh. you uh, mm -hmm. figure out who's the thing. This here is maybe one of the jankiest moments in the movie for me. Um, Rob Boutin, I think, was offset at this point. Or maybe they're oh, on vacation so? in Vancouver. So they just kind of had a couple of rubber tubes, some KY, and these prop hands that Bennings is wearing. Uh, they're not very convincing, but you start small and get Oh, it's bigger. never bothered me. It always bothered me more that that looked like a dummy that caught fire. <laughs> this moment as a kid bugged the fuck out of me, too. This whole just kind of stoic. Nope. He's not your friend. We just got to get on with it and burn him. <laughs> I never understand that kind of mentality in a horror movie, mm. ever. Once I would have seen that shit go down and be like, burn the fuck out of my friend. <laughs> I'd just be on the floor crying, I think. I'm not gonna... We are no longer friends. <laughs> but Trista, I just have a cold. Burn them anyway. We have They're to be contagious. Sure. Stay away. His giant fucking frog hands burn him. <laughs> McCready gets into a section a action figure costume. Low torch McCready. <laughs> so Willie, what was the um, the deal with the the mix, like the stereo mix? They called it like a Matrix stereo mix. This is one of the earlier uses of it. I didn't understand if that was at, at the movie theater or for home video or how they. Do you know anything about that? I don't know what that means, Ron. 
I'm not sure. Hmm. I was reading that like, like early, um, you know, uh, audio files would like use this to to set their surround sound or not their, or their stereo, I guess at the time, for the stereo mix. Oh, back then they had like some, they had a lot of like weird kind of sort of surround sound effects they were trying to get with stereo. I remember like Q sound in the early eighties. A few albums were remastered than that. And then, uh, no, wait, what was I before think, that? Holophonics I, I, was before that. Oh, okay. A couple of Floyd albums had that going. Uh, but yeah, Matrix, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Sorry. Well, I think it was Adobe. I think that was just a marketing thing that they used. But I think it was ultimately Adobe Stereo Mix, but like one of the first films to really use stereo, like effectively, like with the helicopter mm-hmm. shots going across the screen. So he used uh, uh, Cooney used uh, blue airport lights, all this blue light. That's kind of the the uh, Carpenter kind of signature. Is the blue lighting at nighttime? It's wonderful. Oh, it's so beautiful with the uh, the flares. Yeah. This uh, Scream Factory remaster of the of the picture, I I, I like it a lot, and and and. In the circles of nitpickier audio-video nerds um, who normally talk a lot of shit about Scream Factory transfers, they like this one more than most of them. And I do like it. I like the fact that they have preserved a lot of the grain and didn't do a lot of noise reduction on it. But um, the color timing on this version, it, it makes a lot of the greens and, and flesh tones pop a lot more. And I, I think I actually prefer the kind of just blue, black, and white look that the Universal Blu-ray has. That's how they originally intended it, right? It was almost like a, a washed out. They were talking about doing know, like a black and much, white movie in color. Yeah, yeah, closer to the black and white, like just desaturated. But seeing them reds is awfully nice too in this version. And the greens it really is, is green pretty amazing, like how far in depth they can go when they do these uh, these transfers. Um. Oh, oh, here we go. <laughs> Guys, think I'm crazy. I'm fine. It's my favorite delivery in this movie. So another cool thing that, that Carpenter does um, that I was reading about, uh, the theory is called a content curve. And it's the point when you, um, oh, here, real quick, here's his fake hand. You can see his fake hand a little bit. <laughs> here, his broken hand. <laughs> so it's a glove painted painted as, as his hand. I'm sorry. So it's called content, uh, content curve. And it's a point in a shot where the audience can assimilate all the information in the shot. And I think Carpenter uses it really well to, um, you know, it points to disorient the, the audience or to play with the audience by, you know, cutting early or, or late. But I, I don't know. Again, it's just to, to point out just his um, mastery over the form in, in this film. It's, it really is amazing. I mean, the more, the more you break it down, the more you watch it, just the more you appreciate everything that went into it. Technology really gets in 
an ass whooping in this movie. If you <laughs> notice, like the at the very beginning, the chess that computer yeah. gets like techno fear. Yeah, it's all like <laughs> fuck technology. And one of the biggest criticisms that uh, was leveled against this movie at the time too was that the characters were kind of shallow and two-dimensional. And it really is kind of amazing to me because looking at it today, the characters are, are pretty in-depth. They, they, they really do give a lot of dimension to these characters for, you know, for not having what any little backstory. amount of time they, they, they have devoted to them on screen. Yeah. yeah. It feels like Alien in that way. It is just so much with a, a little bit, a little bit of screen time. Like you really, they really feel like they're fleshed out. I think most critics were just offended by the amount of gore and uh, just the grotesque that was shown. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted things to be hidden more. I th- yeah, they didn't really expect this from Carpenter, I don't think, after like like everyone knows him really from Halloween, which is even back then was known for being really restrained. Yeah. Um, it was definitely the biggest criticism from mainstream critics and from for me personally was that Halloween 2 kind of descended and became a little less classy and more like a, a typical slasher film with the high body count and the ridiculous gore. Yeah, you um, did criticize that a lot. You're an asshole. <laughs> 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 but it's funny too, like 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 so many times like in his early career, like The Fog, they went back and did a lot of reshooting for because I mean, A, they didn't think it was scary enough, but also they wanted to insert a little bit extra gore, so they actually like brought, brought uh, Rob Boutin on to do some the, the warm face close-ups for the, the climax um, yeah. because Scanners had just come out and they felt like they had to compete. Um, and this movie definitely feels like Carpenter is kind of trying to uh, out Cronenberg Cronenberg a little bit, maybe? A little well, bit, fun- yeah, yeah. It's funny, one of the things I came across was... Um, the, the term body horror was actually coined in a review of this in um, 83. Really? Ah. Was, was, it was an interview talking about this film. It was the first use of the term body horror. No shit. Well, the, yeah, there are some definite body horror moments. I mean, the, yeah, well, oh, yeah. some that we'll see coming up. There's but, a few. <laughs> so going back to the sound, I just did a little poking around. Um, and what I found is that one of the features on this version of the Blu-ray is that they did a mix of the sound from the multi-track audio that was on the 70 millimeter prints. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that it's interesting because when I was reading that, um, the sound actually got really advanced in the early 60s um, when they were shooting movies in 70 millimeter. Like I saw West Side Story. Uh, a year or two ago at the Hollywood Theater and was kind of blown away by how much they did with sound. And then everything kind of backed off at the end of the 60s um, and sort of was rebuilding, I think, a bit here. So, I mean, I would guess that there'd been a number of movies, like, I mean, in Star Wars, they were moving things around a bit, I think, and and going in. But But I'm still not sure exactly about the stereo mix of this. And here's an example of the chess game. Uh, the thing was just one step ahead of them regarding the blood test. Yeah, so in the, in the short story, they use the dogs um, 
kind of like a, the rabbit test where they introduced the human blood to the dogs to figure out, um, to, to dog blood to figure out who the monster is. And the, uh, the thing kills, there's, in the story, there's like you know, 37 dogs, there's lots of dogs, and it kills all the dogs but leaves the one that they're using for the test as just a total, you know, just totally messing with them. An amazing job on Carpenter and Cundy's part two of just being able to find all these uh, interesting ways to film such a big ensemble of people. Yeah, these, yeah, it's amazing how she sees. And the, uh, the 235, 2.35 aspect ratio is really good for these these ensemble pieces as Tarantino has also found out oh Oh, sorry you you never feel like it's overcrowded you know it's it's always intimate it's always like tightly packed but everybody gets their time I, I tell you the Hawks film did a really good job of that too his his blocking was pretty amazing like going back and watching the the Hawks film and his cast was like twice as big, right? Yeah, yeah, it was huge. Like twenty something people. It was closer to the uh, the original story. It had like thirty seven men or okay. something. You know, once Windows loses its sunglasses, the shit's about to go down. <laughs> <laughs> Someone pointed out how there's a Mac and a Windows in this film. Oh my gosh! Wah, wah. <laughs> God. So some old imagery I was reading about that's kind of cool that comes up in all this dream imagery um, was, uh, you know, the Gorgon, the Medusa, the Medusa image of kind of like the externalized viscera. And then I was reading about the um, creature that, uh, called Humbaba, which was the, the creature slain by Gilgamesh. So it was the guardian of the um, fortress of intestines, and its face was made of its own intestines. Mm-hmm. So this, <laughs> so Gilgamesh was the original body horror story. Total shithead. Yeah, interesting there. Is, is Norris taken over yet when he refuses the position? Kind of makes you wonder. If he was the thing, like he'd want to be in charge maybe and have the gun. Yeah. So I guess at the Arctic Station in... Um in Antarctica, the um, couple of science stations they show a uh, double feature of this of the thing and um, the shining. <laughs> oh, that's true. Awesome. I actually at, uh, at my new job, Before. I actually like uh, mm-hmm. the wife of one of my coworkers worked at the McMurdo Air Base or the McMurdo Ooh. Base in Antarctica, and it was totally a yearly ritual to watch the thing. So I guess they watch it when the last planes are flying out for the winter. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, Carpenter's uh, 
all of his Golden Age films and a few of the ones after, you know, are all about uh, the individual and the outsider um, who kind of winds up forced by circumstance into a situation where they have to um, work to save the society that shuns them. Uh, and they usually like wind up sacrificing themselves in the end. And this is mm-hmm. one of the shining examples of that for sure. It's all about individuality versus working for a group. Um, and the script that we're dealing with here and the thing have a lot in common in that respect, but, uh, one very substantial difference, which we'll probably get into later when we start talking about the blood test and stuff. But, uh, McCready is a, is an outsider you know, in a group of outsiders and it's kind of forced by circumstance into a leadership role here. But he definitely, uh, Occupies a spot with uh, Napoleon Wilson and uh, Nada from They Live. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, you know anything about Carpenter's past that why why he's so attracted to that theme? Um, I think you know, like probably just uh, he he's talked a lot about growing up um, as maybe kind of an artsy film nerd who also had an appreciation for pop culture, but growing up in like a small town in Kentucky. And having a, a college professor father who maybe had some slightly higher brow sensibilities. Um, he tried to teach Carpenter violin. His dad was a, a violinist and a music professor. He tried to keep, teach Carpenter violin at an early age and he was terrible at it. So he moved to uh, uh, guitar and, and keyboards, which he could kind of pull off with his more primitive style. He was very into rock and roll. His dad wasn't so much. So I think he had some conflicts about where he fit in in his town and then where he fit in in his family at home mm-hmm. he's definitely always been a bit of the uh, the outsider rebel type just want to yes. make sure we point out that there are several product placement shots of jmb <laughs> which is the official alcohol of all italian horror movies so i think there's a little homage being paid very nice here so do you guys have a theory why he erased that part why he erases the tape on nobody trusting anybody maybe he doesn't want the thing to hear that they're losing morale or or whoever finds the tape you know like after all of this is over just wants to save face a little bit I don't know this is a great split screenshot there Mm-hmm. diopter So this film did win one award when it came out. It won the uh, worst score <laughs> at the Golden Raspberries. Get out of the here. Razzies. Yeah. yeah. So basically, the critical community proved themselves wrong on every fucking count. Yep. I'm trying to think of the other movies that kind of... I can think of like Peeping Tom from 1960 and, and maybe to a, an extent Jackie Brown, but, but films that were kind of trashed at first and then later kind of redeemed by history. You think it, you guys think of anything, anything else? Caligula. Did, <laughs> 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 I was just savage. <laughs> Do people like heaven's gate these days? I haven't really ever seen it. Um, it's, 
it's considered like a, a flawed masterpiece. I mean, it's people definitely um, you know, think more highly about. It. I mean, there's there's some brilliance in it for sure, but it, it is still kind of a mess. I saw some people on Facebook talking about how awesome Ishtar is. Whoa! And that Ooh. it's a maligned movie. Okay. I have you know, not. I did the I, first I really, ten minutes. I of like that movie Ishtar. quite a bit. Ishtar is a good movie. The songs are fun. They're they're fun. I mean, it was an expensive movie, but <laughs> shit, that doesn't mean it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting too because you know you you can draw comparisons between this film and the Hateful Eight, but um, Tarantino has been interviewed about um, the thing before, and he's a uh, he said that it was a pretty a pretty big influence on Reservoir Dogs as well. Um, the dynamic between the characters and the slow deterioration uh, of uh, their relationships as they slowly begin to mistrust each other and start eating each other alive. Um, Somebody in this all... group isn't who they appear to be. Yeah, Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And the siege thing, and, the, and this is um, from Hateful Eight here, the, the guidelines after oh, the sheds. Yeah. yeah, Carpenter stole it from Hateful Eight. <laughs> bastard oh and this, these wind sounds were actually recorded um, outside of Palm um, Palm Springs or actually maybe Joshua it, but anyway it was the desert that they got all these wind sounds oh wow irony so all, all this all this Blair stuff was in the original story But the whole period takes place over a week in the story. And he's out there, the same thing. He's inventing like an anti-gravity machine to escape. So is he still human and contemplating suicide? Or is this part of the chess strategy? Is he trying to fake MacReady out? Yeah, I think he's, he's kind of positing some um, paranoia here. I, I think he's a creature here. It's what you do. <laughs> yeah, um, I think if they had put Donald Pleasance in this role, it would have been a much more obvious conclusion that, yeah, he's the fucking alien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First scene. Yeah. I would love to see him smashing up that Before room. Before you even the know there's an alien. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the theories on him burning up? On Fuchs burning up, Willie? This is the one thing that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, that he ran out and yeah, this is one one of the things that uh, they kind of regretted. They just there there were a few deaths in this movie that they weren't really able to get proper closure on. Um, I think Fuchs, Bennings, uh, Fuchs and Bennings, I, I know were definitely they had original alternate murders that were a little more slashery, like they were killed with implements. I think Bennings was killed with a screwdriver, and like Fuchs got impaled with a shovel or something like that, and they decided that mm-hmm. was too slasher, but. Uh, they couldn't really go back and totally redo it, so they just kind of had to fake their way through it. So you have those two kills, and then like you've got Nalls at the end who just kind of disappears, and you have no idea what happened to him. A couple little frustrating bits there that I think were, were very frustrating even for, for Carpenter and Stuart Cohen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost seems like they, they, they had other scenes in mind for those characters, but they just didn't have the time to do it. Because at that point in the movie, you just have to keep moving on. Mm. And I think, if memory serves, I think something like that happened with uh, with Palmer's transformation. Like, the first time around, it didn't work, and they had to kind of improvise something else. With Knowles, too, you're thinking, uh, he's the cook, he's on roller skates, he's not going to survive. <laughs> We're kind of getting into Night of the Living Dead territory now with boarding up the doors and windows and stuff. And uh, obviously there's kind of a, of, a, of a bleakness that's very similar to Night of the Living Dead. And it's a siege piece, a lot like Night of the Living Dead. But if there's a difference between the movies, I still feel like this movie, as hopeless as it is, it's very pes- it's very optimistic about the way that humans can behave in a really pessimistic situation they do they do turn on each other but they do kind of pull it together at the end as well and uh, that never quite happens in in living dead it's a much more nihilistic movie than than even the thing is there's just a No that's true they 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 really do get organized toward the end here they they start you know recognizing what they have to do tactically to to defeat the thing you know what it just is there's no bitches to distract them <laughs> <laughs> it's just them <laughs> Well, that was the, that was the thing with uh, the Bill Lancaster script. Um, you know, there, uh, you know, there's a lot of subtext about you know being all men, and you know, all of these horrific things are kind of like you know symbolic of like the birthing process and all this shit. But with uh, with Lancaster, you know, his, his whole thing was like when he was watching monster movies growing up, he would always get frustrated by the fact that there'd be like some romantic subplot. It would get in the way of people getting eaten. <laughs> 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 so he wanted to make this movie that was just like all meat, you know, no no fat or gristle or anything. Just a... Who you calling fat? What? <laughs> <laughs> That's why this movie bombed. It's an R rated movie with no tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's a little yeah, little vagina dentata later, but it's not no quite tits. the same. That's, that's, that's <laughs> E.T. didn't have tits either. Well, kind of. <laughs> little pig, little pig. being really disturbed by this as a kid because he's the hero of the movie and the hero typically is like the one who is willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good and this is the guy who's willing to blow up the entire fucking camp <laughs> uh, to survive
So I think it's it's so cool that we never know the original form of the creature. I think we have no idea what it really, what its original form is, what it really looks like. Does it have one? It just makes it scarier. Yeah, maybe it doesn't. Is it just kind of a shapeshifty virus? Yeah. So yeah, here I guess it replicated uh, Norris a little too perfectly. It like also replicated his heart condition. me and my dynamite <laughs> oh no and here we go this is a an argument for uh letterboxing and and widescreen if there ever was one for for not panning and scanning but uh just the the scalpel that you see richard Mazur pick up in the background here mm-hmm. it's kind of an essential bit of misdirection from what's about to happen This whole effect apparently came about from a joke that Rob Bottin had told John Carpenter on set. It wasn't part of the original plan. But uh, when John Carpenter heard the idea, he was like, oh, yeah, let's work that in. Mm. We had our tentacles earlier, and now we get our vagina dentata. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. Special effect oh, using a double, double amputee. <laughs> a double amputee with yep. a prosthetic face. To actually use arms. <laughs> yeah, just for that two second shot. Wow. And the first time they tried to shoot this particular effect, the room was already full of noxious fumes from the concoction that the rubber stretchy stuff is made out of. And they put that fire bar at the bottom of the screen, and the entire appliance kind of exploded into flame. <laughs> and they had to get it all redone, like in 24 hours. God damn! Wow. It's like they just threw everything at the wall with this with this uh, effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is fucking extraordinary. No, we haven't gotten far enough yet. <laughs> they turned all the effects <laughs> up we, to we can Keep stretching this one. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this this, this this Kathy Griffin is what you do with a severed head. You don't <laughs> That's kind of the Medusa image. Okay. <laughs> so, Willie, real quick, what, how did they... Um, Manufacture the the alien scream. I had heard that they had worked in like different animals to. Yeah, I think it's a, when the creature screams. Yeah, there are a few that kind of sound like uh, lion or dinosaur roars that are being slowed down. Um, this one here sounds like highly modulated <laughs> breath, like it's being run through. Fast <laughs> <laughs> lines. <laughs> <laughs> So were those lines in the original <laughs> script, or were they improvised? That one was improvised, I think. That was, I improvised. think. <laughs> what about like, McCready's at the end say? when he throws yeah. the... Yeah, I think there's some goat in there I had read. 
that makes sense. There actually is a, an interview segment with uh, the Foley artist, I think, on, on uh, this edition. And the one thing that I remember that he used was, um, I think, like, rubbing his fingers on, like, bathroom shower glass to get the kind of squeaky sound. And I think that mainly shows up in the blood test scene. But he wanted that to kind of be the signature sound for the creature. And uh, he was talked into doing something that was a little more monster roar sounding. There we go with that scalpel again. You didn't see that in the pan and scan version. Yeah, he's really good. The Foley artist is, is really good. So as we get into uh, the blood test stuff here, there's kind of two separate themes to talk about, I think. And right here in the background, you see that poster. It says, they aren't labeled chum. And she's wearing a tag that says, I have VD. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely a clear kind of metaphor going through this entire thing. The fact that there's uh, an all-male crew who are kind of dealing with uh, the fear of catching something, I think, and fear of sex. Um, but then at the same time, uh, MacReady's rationale here kind of sums up again this theme of individuality and uh, this group of individuals these two groups of individuals one represented by Outpost 31 and one represented by the Thing who are battling each other um, the difference between the two and the Thing's weakness which ultimately allows these guys to defeat it is that the individual cells that make up the Thing They'll work together until the shit hits the fan and their own lives are in danger and then they all abandon ship. Um, and that is not quite the case with these guys. They stick together through the entire thing and even, yeah, sacrifice their own individuality and their own lives for the sake of the greater, the greater good. And that's the, uh, the one trait the thing does not have. True that. Do you guys see how this is like the alien pregnancy test. And these are all men getting this blood <laughs> test done to see if they've been <laughs> impregnated. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Now yeah, there's an interesting, you know, feminist <laughs> takes take on this. Alien as well. You know. Like this being kind of a castration anxiety. Aliens got the uh, the male characters who who get raped and die during childbirth. So I guess here this is like kind of a, a misdirection and an exploration of this idea that like does a person know when they've been taken over by the thing? Windows seems really unsure what's going to happen here, and seems very relieved when uh, he gets proved human at the end, which kind of makes you think like, well, maybe this test is bullshit. But he so seems about ready to like thing a, out at any second here. Sorry? It's like a weaponized menstrual cycle. <laughs> <laughs> well, could it be that they do feel when they're going that they are? Or is it that he's scared that he is and he didn't know it? It seems what it's like. Yeah. 
That's my only guess for why he behaved that way. Also love the lack of music in the scene. Yeah. Just the wind blowing. And we're setting up the phony hand with the with the jumping blood in it. And there we go. No no highlights in Palmer. He said, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> great, great jump there. Yeah. <laughs> so this is interesting coming up how the creature, and this was in the original story, that the creature is kind of beyond, um, oh, man. beyond our physical, <laughs> our, our, the realm of physics as we know it. <laughs> You want to kind of go to the ceiling here. <laughs> so the Campbell short story had all these references to magnetism, like the, the creature was somehow tied to magnetism. <laughs> ah. Always test your flamethrower. <laughs> Regular flamethrower checks. <laughs> well, Halloween 2 moment here. Oh, God. <laughs> Kurt Russell's hair still looks perfect, though. Volcano <laughs> <laughs> Aqua Velvet. No, what's it called? <laughs> what's that hairspray? Yeah, Kurt Russell apparently almost killed himself with a stick of dynamite on the set. Because they were having him throw actual dynamite. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And he like there's a shot where he throws it and you see him like fly back and he's actually flying back from the force of the blast.
Oh, so yeah, and going back to the uh, talking about Carpenter and, and reshoots, um, we talked about The Fog a little bit earlier, and then uh, Halloween 2, which was a, a film that he, of course, didn't even direct, but um, he looked at the, the cut that Rick Rosenthal turned in and kind of said, yeah, this, this is a little too slow, it doesn't quite work, and it needs a few more scenes. So he went back and reshot a little bit that got inserted into the into the movie. And then uh, again with the thing he pretty much had to go back and reshoot and restructure the entire second act because uh it wasn't scary enough and it was too talky. Yeah, it really is a little strange that uh, Keith David never really had like another big lead role after this. He was a really did some really great acting in here. Yeah, I wonder what's the deal with that. Yeah, I remember seeing you know, like they live, obviously. And the only thing I can remember other than that, I think, was Requiem for a Dream that I saw. Man, that was a pretty small part. Yeah. With a big impact. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he played a really disturbing character. <laughs> a little bit. I yeah. forgot about that. So before we launch into the, the finale here, I just want to mention real quick um, the uh, a couple of books that I, that I looked at for this. Uh, one was the the thing by Ann Bilson, which was on the BFI Modern Classics um, plate, and it came out in let's see, nineteen ninety seven. But it's kind of like a love letter to the movie, and it really did a lot to rehabilitate rehabilitate the film and then another book is uh from the devil's advocate series it's called the thing by jez Connolly. it's a really nice companion piece to the film hmm. and of course i want to do a shout out for outpost 31 the the thing band club site there's a lot of people out there that love the thing Yeah, it's a it's a pretty fucking extraordinary movie. Yeah, it didn't get a whole lot of love when it first came out, but uh, no, sir. I think over time people started to realize that there's there's a lot more going on in this movie than uh, they gave it credit for. I mean, yeah, it's like it's definitely the one that uh, you know, he, like he was clearly thinking about this one. He wanted this well, one yeah, to be I mean, remembered and and studied and and I you know with all the the different fan theories that are being discussed and debated uh, on YouTube and in forums uh, everywhere on the internet right now I would not be at all surprised if in like another five years like there was enough content to make like a, a room two thirty seven style documentary yeah. about this movie and everyone's different theories about it. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe that's a project for you. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, again, yeah, I got to go back to Rob Ager, uh, collativelearning.com, and he's got a whole bunch of shit on YouTube, but uh, he has analyzed the fuck out of this movie. It's a, it's a pretty fun thing to to observe. We haven't really talked about the all the masks, you know, all the kind of hiding of identities like within the movie. That's a good point. And the other thing is, I mean, they might as well be on another planet. It's so, you know, alien from wherever they're from. It's just a very different environment. Everything looks scary, actually. <laughs> Even the everyday things, just like when the uh, copter was covered with the... the uh, plastic and the way yeah. the plastic was blowing in the wind i was like what the fuck is that kind of like it's breathing yeah oh it's plastic <laughs> it's plastic in the wind regarding the theme i don't know how you guys heard it all these years i didn't realize until i saw john carpenter and his band play it live i've always heard the downbeat as being like dun 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 but the way they played it, it's more like dun 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 dun. So I don't know if you guys have always heard where you guys have heard the downbeat, but I recently had to kind of rethink the way that I heard this piece of music. I think I like mine better. I think it's funkier, but that's okay. Willie knows best. I know what I like anyway. Yeah, this is a really great sequence where they're just like, they're not just destroying the outpost, but it's like grueling labor. It takes them a long fucking time to do this. And it's hard work. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not just like lighting a fuse and then watching the whole thing blow up. Yeah, it's a lot of work to kill yourself, for sure. Yeah. That's something that I, th I think is is really missing from modern films. Is uh, there, There's like a sense of immediacy that's taken over. Kind of like this tyrannical, you know, I have to get everything done right now. I can barely hear you over the explosions, Damon. Saying boom, I said boom, boom, boom. Oh <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, I mean this isn't exactly like a slow burned film, but but the way that modern films are 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 carried out, this whole thing would have happened in like thirty seconds. Totally. You know the uh, mm -hmm. the they wouldn't give the audience credit for you know watching you know these these characters going through and methodically destroying. Everything. Um, but there's something to it you know these are these are guys who like live out on the ass end of nowhere in the middle of antarctica and uh the way that they destroy themselves is the way that they live i just want to mention i love how kundi embraces lens flare mm-hmm 
I don't know, something about Spielberg always, always feels gratuitous about it, but I always feel like when he earns his, earns his flares. So, Willie, is this, is this basement just a basement, or do you think this is a subconscious? Oh, the basement is always the subconscious. Always, always. Yeah, could he never gets in the way of his own shots? You never feel like the, his style is interfering with anything. It's it's always just disservice. So one of the points is was interesting. Sorry, interrupt you. Um, was how everyone's like how the creature silences its victims. You know how it um, either bites you know their heads or chokes them or you know the case coming up puts their hand hand over their mouths so it silences them. That's just wonderful. Oh. Mm. oh. <laughs> Ow. Yeah. It's Such a matter a of fact. Way. Love it. Strange way to kill somebody. <laughs> Talk to the hand. It's a little, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> That's a caveman. That's like the classic caveman. Drag you, drag the bitch by the hair. <laughs> yeah, did that have a little face quality that whole hand over the mouth murder you think mm. probably a little bit they were just playing alien Oh dear. Guys, <laughs> this isn't funny. This, isn't... <laughs> <laughs> this would be a great set at Disneyland. Jonesy? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if they had a thing ride, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until you found out the person you went in with has been assimilated. You can't get off the ride until they do a blood test on you. <laughs> that would be great seeing like kids taking pictures with the, the giant head with spider stalks coming out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go into a little bit of the stop motion. 
they weren't able to use all of it. They didn't think all of it looked quite as well, which is unfortunate because I remember like the first time seeing this, the first, probably several times, I don't think I ever noticed that this was Blair, this giant monster here at the end. It's very hard to see that face yeah. on the side. Yeah. yeah. There, there was, yeah, there was a lot more to this than, uh, Like he kind of slides out and becomes a worm, and yeah, it's it's all a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it. There's like a, a cutout scene where they uh, he grows actually a lot larger. It's almost like a kaiju kind of thing. And uh, they have like a miniature model of the set that he's towering over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, seriously! If you, if you if you go online and check this out, there's there's a scene that he cut out. You can see why. It just looks very Harryhausen-esque. Yeah. yeah. So, have you guys seen the the sequel? I mean, the prequel. Yeah, I saw it. No, what is it? Oh, it's the... called the thing. Yeah, they did. The, only they did a... There was only one. Hmm? Yeah, it was, a, it was a prequel to this. It's like what happens at the Norwegian camp before yeah. mm. it gets over here. But um, the one thing that they did that I thought was cool was with the metal, like it can't assimilate metal. Oh, right. So <coughs> they used uh, fillings to tell if someone was human or not. Hey, that was one of the cool things. There was a lot that fell really fucking short in that movie. Primarily the fact that it was basically a remake disguised as a prequel, but it was the exact same story. I've erased it from my mind. I totally watched it and (laughs) didn't like it, and it has been removed. Yeah, watch Harbinger Down instead. What's that? What's Harbinger Down? Uh, That's basically, it was made by um, Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis, the the makeup uh, and uh, prosthetic effects guys who did a lot of work on the thing prequel that later got covered up by CG, but it's, it's the more practical version of that story. It's, hmm. um, I think it's like an oil refinery out in the ocean instead of, uh, anything in space or in the tundra, but, um, similar kind of idea, shape-shifting monster, but all done practical, a lot of fun effects. So he still has his earring in. So if that, I mean, I'm uh, taking okay. it. So yeah, there are a couple different theories that people have posed. There's the there's the eye light theory, which I really don't yeah. see any eye lights in Childs here at the end. And some people have talked about the fact that you can't see his breath means he's the thing. Some people have suggested that uh, this bottle of J&B that McCready shares with him is actually like a Molotov cocktail and the thing doesn't know he's drinking gas. I think it's, I That's think what it's, it's almost possible to see eye lights in Childs. But McCready clearly has his eyes in shadow. Oh, no, there were some eyelids there. Never mind. But yeah, if the thing had inherited everything from Childs, I'm sure he would have inherited the fact that gas tastes like shit. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Maybe. I don't know. 
that's how you make a masterpiece. Pretty much. <laughs> it's that easy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I know that this was kind of this whole experience really kind of broke Carpenter's heart, and at this point, you know, like he doesn't want to fucking talk about it anymore, but. I, I, I do hope on, that on some level he at least appreciates the fact that he was alive to see people kind of change their minds and embrace this movie. Because a, a lot of artists are not that lucky. Well, yeah, and he's, he's also... I, I, I really think that his, during the tour and, and getting involved with his music again has really kind of revitalized his passion for um, the material that he was working with before. Hmm. Because it definitely wasn't coming out with, you know, um, the movies that he was trying to put out. Um, his stuff was becoming just more, much more commercial, and it, his heart wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's interesting the way that, you know, you, you can see as he's, as he's doing his tours and, you know, uh, putting out his new album, um, it's, it's kind of woken something up. I have to say, and, uh, oh, he, he, seem, he seems much more enthused about the Halloween remake too. Yeah. 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 We'll see where all that goes. I'm a little, I'm a little too jaded to hold my breath, but I am optimistic. Wait, what? Yeah. There's oh, another the, one. They're, they're, they're like the theory that what I've heard is they're going to go back and I don't know if they're going to redo Halloween two or just make Halloween two the starting point for the next sequel. But uh, they're going back into that. Blumhouse is doing it. They brought Carpenter back on board as an executive producer, um, which, according to everybody who's talking about it, means that he's going to have final approval on everything. Mm. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. Maybe yeah, they're gonna, they're going to kill Rob Zombie. They're, it's going to be a snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. kill I'm going to see that. I'm buying my ticket. John tonight. Carpenter's yeah. going to play yeah. a synthesizer the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be some pudgy naked dude dancing in the corner. It's going to be weird. But <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to make a prediction right now that uh, you know even though you know fans of of the original thing hated this movie so much and over time people have recognized and embraced this movie for what it is rather than what it isn't that that is not going to happen with the Rob Zombie Halloween movies in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be even more forgotten than they are right now. We were so wrong. It was genius. (laughs) (laughs) But I must say, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you were talking about uh, his kind of career renaissance that he had as a, as a, as a musician and as a rock star, this kind of retirement hobby brought him back out of retirement and back into the world of show business. And, you know, if we don't get anything else, I am so fucking grateful that uh, that we got these last two albums from from John, and that we got to be in the same room for him with him for a little bit, hearing these songs played in real time live. That was something I never thought would happen in in my lifetime. Yeah, that was pretty magical. Yeah, you just never know where life's gonna take you. Any final thoughts? I'm depressed now. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a bummer. Yeah. And William D. Lee is my grandfather's name. Boo. All the connections in this movie are scary. Conspiracy type shit happening. I'm telling you, man. Michael Plug there, it's a uh, 
comic book artist that uh, Rob Boutin got to kind of go away and collaborate with uh, very extensively on the storyboards for what the thing would turn into. They operated from the, the concept that the thing could look like any creature that it had ever imitated on any planet, which opened up a lot of possibilities and really kind of pushed their, uh, pushed their abilities and their resources more than, more than once, but they, they really pulled off something amazing here. I think the the thing was like John Carpenter always had this belief that you know if you, if you're going to have fear of the unknown on film it has to be something that's that's really unfilmable if it can be filmed you really should show it mm-hmm. and he always had like um it was almost like a contempt for like Val Luton you know that that sort of filmmaking where you know there would just be like a jump scare that comes out of nowhere from some source that could never actually harm the you know the person who's the source of the scare um and so with the thing i think he tried to really bring all the nightmares up to the surface and show everything that he possibly could in the most you know dynamic way possible um and uh I think he, he proved it right. I think he, you can actually show anything you want to and uh, have that be just as frightening as, as uh, you know, whatever is lurking in your imagination. But you have to be John Carpenter to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> All right. I guess, yeah. No, I'm spent. I got nothing left. Was it as good for you as it was for me? I need a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) And some tentacles.